Welcome to the Political R&D Podcast. I'm Robbie Krieger-Smith. And I'm Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. We bring political analysis and commentary on events in Alberta and Canadian politics. We discuss policy and look for expert insights into topics relevant to government, policymakers, and issues that face voters. Hi, Deirdre. So what do we have on our agenda today? It was it was a big week. It was a long week. I've had naps. <laughs> Let's start with Callaway's six-hour hearing on Monday. Yeah, so Callaway, uh, Jeff Callaway, for those who don't know, had an emergency injunction hearing on Monday attempting to stop the Alberta Election Commissioner from investigating into the alleged kamikaze campaign. And remember, it was a pause, not a stop, just a pause until after the election. Until after the election, correct. And like, I was, I found that really interesting because it was like the the personal attacks on the commissioner. And granted, I mean, following along via Twitter, we weren't getting obviously everything that was going on, but it didn't seem to me that it was really clear how, or sorry, why they were actually pushing about the commissioner's bias. Yeah, it was an interesting angle for them to take for sure. Hearing about the urgency with which they were seeking this injunction, you kind of start to think, okay, well, what's the motivation? Why are they doing this? Obviously, the writ drop has happened since the investigation was open. So Mm-hmm. For me, obviously having some partisan or ideological bias, mm-hmm. the thought is the investigation is going to uncover some sa- unsavory things, and there's quite a big motivation to stop that from coming out during the election in case it's going to potentially impact the viability of the UCP campaign. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I was kind of confused about was was the fact that there's both an election commissioner investigation going on as well as an RCMP investigation into the same. It's interesting because the legislation states that the election commissioner can't really say much as far as the investigations are concerned, but bits and pieces have been leaking out via letters that he has issued to different people who are being investigated in this debacle, I'll call it. Some of the information has come out via Cameron Davies, who was one of Jeff Calloway's campaign managers. He leaked those letters to the media or shared them with the media openly. Mm -hmm. So quite a bit of information was able to be gleaned from that. That's where we first found out the name of Robin Lore, who was the person that donated, quote unquote, donated the $60,000. Now, Mr. Lore allegedly said that that was a loan to Cameron Davies, but Cameron Davies refutes that and says that there was never any discussion of it being a loan. We've also seen a few other names that have come up via letters, again, from the election commissioner that have been issued with fines. 
And then one of the sources of information that we get with the election commissioner is whenever a fine or a penalty is applied, he's required to post that onto his website. Sometimes that happens without any sort of context or details. And so the journalists have basically been refreshing that page constantly <laughs> looking for new information. And then they go dig and talk to people who are identified in that. And bit by bit, it's been dripping out uh, the details of the Kamikaze campaign investigation. So mm -hmm. there's something in there. And without any sort of inside information, there's something that the election commissioner, Lauren Gibson, believes is illegal and beyond his terms of reference and what he's allowed to investigate or what he's responsible for enforcing. My guess would probably be it would be something to do with either falsified records or making donations on behalf of somebody because that would technically be fraud if they didn't have any knowledge of it. The UCP has confirmed that the RCMP has contacted them and they have offered to cooperate uh, both on this case and in a voter fraud investigation. There's definitely potential for some sort of criminal activity to have occurred that would have caused the election commissioner to pass that on to the RCMP. Mm -hmm. On Monday's hearing, we learned that that there were a number of applicants other than Jeff Calloway. So it was Jennifer and Darren Thompson, Bonnie Thompson, Robin Lohr, Nicole Calloway, as well as Jeff Calloway. So those mm -hmm. are all of the applicants. And I found it really interesting where the judge, I mean, there were, there were a couple of things where the judge, Judge Kirker had originally made a comment asked why they didn't ask for a judicial review rather than the emergency hearing and so that and i i wonder if they're actually going to do the or sorry if they can ask for the judicial review or if by going for the hearing they essentially waived waived that entirely because i know that sometimes if you go above then you've lost access to that one that you could have had at first. Yeah, I'll need to confirm this, but one of the things that I seem to recall reading in the judgment, um, or with respect to the judgment by Judge Kirker on this past Thursday, was that seeking a judicial review was actually something that would come after the investigation was completed. And part of the argument that... Uh, the um, Callaway lawyer Bernardo was making was that continuing with the investigation would cause harm to his clients and if it was allowed to proceed that it would potentially infringe upon their right to participate in the election. I'm no legal expert but it seems a little bit bizarre to me because nothing stops them from voting <laughs> or turning on the television or radio and listening. Um, and they're not actually candidates. But uh, right. it seems in, in the judgment, though, Kirker did say that any harm that might be caused by the investigation being allowed to continue could reasonably rem be remedied by seeking a judicial review or by pursuing further court action. So in weighing it, it sounds like Kirker said, yes, there might be some potential for harm to occur but those harms wouldn't be um, such that they wouldn't be irreparable. Okay. So that was on 
Monday, and then the judgment came down on Wednesday at 4 p.m. Yes. And yeah. in the meantime, so the justice had asked that the applicants be made available for interviews because, number one, it was an emergency hearing. So this was stuff they wanted dealt with right away. She said, I can't make a decision right at the moment, but I will do my best to have it on Wednesday. In the meantime, I would like to... I would like to interview the applicants. And on their behalf, Bernardo said the applicants will not be available for interviews and they will take the consequences, which was kind of a, um, was, was kind of a, I understand this is what you want us to do. We're not going to do that and hope that you will still uh, rule in our favor. It just, it, it kind of seemed like a, that made it seem like a real waste of time to to find that at like 7.30 at night after this had already been going on for like four hours. Yeah, I think they were kind of hoping for a uh, Hail Mary pass, to be honest. You know, certainly like Robin Lore had scheduled an interview for the Tuesday. And then on Monday night, when the judge is hearing the injunction case, lawyer Bernardo says that he's not even in the country. That's a little bit bizarre, and it sounds to me like they, they're they certainly doing everything that they can to... Um, pause the investigation? Pa- pause or hold <laughs> up. I, yeah. I mean, if I wasn't worried about uh, legal repercussions, one might use the word obstruct, but... Uh, ah, yeah. yes, yes. No, it's... Uh, and that... So, I mean, there was, there was absolutely nothing out, out about that on Tuesday... It wasn't until Wednesday and at 4 p.m. And it was quick. Her her judgment was delivered very quickly and or her ruling, sorry. And I remember it was when they said that there that there may have been an apprehension of bias. And I looked it up really quickly because, yeah, it sounds like we're talking about whether or not the commissioner was biased. Once I looked it up. And then she said, there's a serious question around it. My first thought, my first thought went to that letter from Happy Man, because mm-hmm. they had discussed that, right? And I thought, oh, no, if him, if him putting that letter out actually manages to hold this up now. So I was, I was super surprised when the next comment was denied the pause in the investigation. So... I don't, I'm not even sure, and again, like you said, this could be where they're saying, if this exists, then what you need to do is look at a judicial review after the investigation is complete. Yeah, in in the judgment that Kirker handed down Wednesday, she did say that Bernardo's concerns about bias are reasonable, Mm -hmm. but that they should be heard in court at a later date. And in order to do that, the lawyer would need to start a new process. So there's no timeline on that. Um, But it sounds like she feels that there may be some merit to that argument, but that argument wasn't strong enough to cease or um, grant an injunction into the investigation until after the election was completed. Right. This has been, I mean, this has been going on, we found out, that it's been going on since January. That's when they first started requesting the interviews. 
the file was probably opened at some point in December after the anonymous, the first anonymous complaint, which was received November 30th. So, I mean, it's been four months. We're now going into like since they would have started looking at this. So the idea that it uh, was an emergency now kind of seems like they maybe waited on it a little bit too long to have done anything. They should have been on it sooner if they thought that it was going to be an issue. Even people that I know that are politically engaged are really confused with all the kind of different aspects of the investigations because there's actually three investigations that are occurring. You have the election commissioner investigating the alleged illegal donations to the Callaway campaign and the Callaway campaign as a whole. You have the election commissioner investigating the allegations by Prab Gill that there was voter fraud. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have the RCMP, which has actually um, been confirmed now that they're investigating both in various aspects as well. So I guess that's actually four investigations. You've got two that are happening with the RCMP and two that are happening with the elections commissioner. So, mm-hmm. and because the election commissioner can't give us, or sorry, isn't isn't allowed to release information about what he's investigating, it's it's basically been through, like you said, uh, Cam Davies, uh, Happy Man, Prab Gill. They're the ones that have made their information public, and yeah. that's how we found out the most of it. But I mean, we are finding out more since the hearing even part of the application for an injunction required them to file documents with the judge and the court Mm -hmm. and in so doing that made them matters of public record that's when we found out about Lenore Eaton who was the CFO for the Jeff Calloway campaign she also served in uh, capacity as a CFO for a PAC or third-party advertiser uh, called Energize Alberta they allegedly contributed funds to the Callaway campaign. It's illegal for a corporation, which is what a PAC is registered as in Alberta, to contribute funds to a candidate or to a party. Those rules are relatively new, but they were in place for the UCP leadership. When she was interviewed by investigators, she allegedly lied to the investigators or withheld information about her involvement with that PAC and Mm -hmm. the donations that were made. So she's received a letter from the elections commissioner, Gibson, who has stated that she may be guilty of corrupt practices. And that is a a charge that could lead to up to $50,000 fine and up to two years in prison or both. So that letter was issued to her, I believe that was at the end of March, but she's got till April 19th to respond to that letter. So that's actually after the election is complete. Mm -hmm. But uh, one thing's clear is that it's not going to go away. No, no, it definitely isn't. And that uh, that's worth keeping up on. But that was (laughs) I should say that it's not going to go away unless Kenny wins the election and we no longer have an election commissioner before he's able to complete his work. Yeah, there's that possibility. However, with the um, with the advanced votes, or sorry, the advanced, yeah, advanced voting being open to, you can vote anywhere. You don't have to vote in your own riding. And they're expecting that this is actually going to delay if it's a close, you know, if, if they can't 
if they can't guarantee that the amount of advanced votes that they received uh, were, you know, if those are needed to count in some of these close races, then we won't know who, w- which party has formed government until the end of April. Yeah, I think unless there's a massive swing in the polling, everything that I'm seeing right now is showing that the UCP is going to win by a large margin. Mm-hmm. Um, we've yet to see the impact of the debate, but I don't believe that there was a significant enough um, victory in the debate by anybody to dramatically change the outcome or the momentum of the election. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah, I so, felt like nobody won. No, and I, I don't think that that advanced voting change is going to make much of a difference except for maybe in a small handful of ridings where it's very, very close. Right. Yeah, so it might, I mean, but the way that it's, the way that it's looking, though, still, if we don't find out until the end of, end of April, I'm not, I'm really unhappy about that, by the way, because things are supposed to be over on April the 16th. Yep. <laughs> I don't like the idea that this could actually stretch out an extra two weeks. It's, I've got mixed emotions about it because one thing that obviously is kind of nice is knowing right away who your government is. Mm -hmm. Um, But as an example, my parents have had to go work in BC. They still reside in Alberta. Um, For them to be able to vote in this election, if they didn't apply for special ballots, they would have had to drive seven hours back to their polling station. So from that aspect, it's nice for them because they can just cross the border and vote um so for some people who you know work on the road or whatnot it it makes voting more accessible for university students um people that have fly in fly out jobs it's going to make voting more accessible for them so i think that's really great um Mm -hmm. but yeah definitely there's going to be some writings where it is going to hold up the results and we won't know for a little bit that was the first couple of days this week we also had another interesting thing going on almost nightly and that started with the mark smith tape on tuesday which ended up with ryan jesperson going to adler yeah uh, charles and adler tonight yeah what an interview that was and i i haven't heard anything like that in a really long time um until the next night that is right. but uh <laughs> jesperson just went on this like phenomenal diatribe about all the bozo eruptions that have occurred in the UCP Mm -hmm. and the backlash and for those who don't know Mark Smith is the UCP candidate for the Drayton Valley Devon riding he was elected as a Wild Rose MLA in the 2015 election um, had been an educator in Drayton Valley for about 30 years a sermon that he had given at the Calvary Baptist Church in Drayton Valley a recording of that came to light and um, he basically says that women who have abortions are murdering their children and calling it love and calling it love that was the weird part yeah yeah no definitely and then said that you don't have to look very far in the media or tv to see that homosexual love is being portrayed as real love then says you can go on the website um, which I thought was super fun, but I think he meant the internet. I think um, so too. <laughs> you'll have to forgive him. He's in his 50s and obviously getting a little foggy. It said you can go on the website and find places where they might 
say that pedophilia is real love too. I think it so, was actually good love. Was good love, yeah. Good love, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, as a gay person, deeply offensive to have my loving marriage compared to pedophilia. Um, yeah. And it's a very commonly held talking point, especially in religious communities, that part of the reason why same-sex marriage shouldn't be allowed and why same-sex relationships are wrong is because it's going to devolve into allowing pedophilia and bigamy, polygamy, and eventually bestiality is some of the talking points. And it's actually one that the leader, Jason Kenney, used to use about why we couldn't legalize gay marriage. So the slippery slope to slippery animals. Slope, yeah, to animals. It starts with kids and then becomes animals and everybody's going to be marrying their horse and their dog. Yes. Um, so 10, 10 years in hasn't happened, but um, never, oddly enough, never mind the fact that the church has actually done more to harbor pedophiles than the gay community has, but <laughs> I digress. Jason Kenney in previous interviews with Charles Adler had said that if there was bozo eruptions that were occurring, he was going to remove them from the party and that he wasn't going to allow divisive social issues to distract from the UCP taking back Alberta and reigniting the economy. Part of the challenger problem is that this is a very safe conservative riding. So Jason Kenney has very little motivation to remove Mr. Smith from the nomination. And because the deadline has passed to put names on the ballot, if he were to kick Mr. Smith out of the UC, UCP party, then they would be giving up that seat. Now, I feel very strongly that, especially given the polling and the fact that Mr. Kenny has such a wide margin of victory looking at the trends, that he can afford to give up a seat. And mm -hmm. it's about doing what's right and showing that you can be a leader and a premier for all people in Alberta not just the people who subscribe to your ideology or party. The problem that Jesperson raises in his interview with Adler is that you've got organizations like Wilberforce, who is a pro-life group, and Right Now, and Rebel Media, who are supporting the UCP and have been claiming that they've been helping to organize and fund candidates and get out the vote. And so there's this perception that Jason Kenney is beholden to these right-wing groups. And I think there's an element of truth there. They've been bragging that they won 40% of the UCP nominations. If the UCP forms government, that we're going to have the most pro-life legislature in Alberta's history, is what they're saying. Um, not so sure how accurate that is, given the social credits part yeah. this time. But again, I digress. Um, but, uh, you know, they haven't been shy about the role that they've played in helping the UCP to succeed. Right. And if you don't think that Jason Kenney has wrote some checks he's going to have to cash if he becomes premier, then, I mean, let's take some bets right now and I'll do an I told you so <laughs> dance in six or eight months. Yeah. And that's actually something else that I've been kind of noticing. And so Mark Smith's Mark Smith's sermon, uh, Jeremy Wong with his misogynistic sermon 
um, the and he, and he's in Calgary Mountain View. Then you've got the Livingstone McLeod. I believe his was a sermon as well. Has anyone done the math? And I haven't done it, but it's just sort of come to me while we were prepping for this tonight that there seems to be a lot of uh, religious affiliation with the candidates for the UCP. Oh, without a doubt there is. Um, And as somebody who identifies as kind of a progressive conservative, I don't see a conservative party, certainly in Alberta, certainly not federally, that aligns with my values. And those are socially progressive or libertarian values, but fiscally conservative. There seems to be this movement. And even if you look at the Progressive Conservative Party of Alberta and the Wild Rose Party, you took the two of them and merged them. And somehow that party went from a centrist and a center-right party into a further right than the Wild Rose Party. Um, it's, it's just really bizarre. It's like mixing blue and green and getting orange. Um, yeah. Yeah, it just, it's way out there. And again, to me, it it all relates to Jason Kenney's method of getting into power and the people that he called on to support him. Like he was busing, bringing in busloads of students from religious camps to vote in delegate selection meetings for him. And again, you know, there's, there's checks that have been written and they're going to at some point come and collect payment and it's not going to be pretty for Albertans. Mm-hmm. That's something else as well that kind of came up on the the second night when Jason Kenney went on, on Charles Adler. And one of the things, this is why I brought up the, the candidates, the number of candidates that seem to have this affiliation and, and it's old school religion right it's it's definitely not any form of of progression where you know you accept all your fellow humans but when charles adler was interviewing jason kenny one of the things that he talked about was how jason kenny had recruited individuals for the conservative party of canada and yep. how he recruited people who were you know upstanding citizens and that doesn't seem to be the case in Alberta. And so again, it was it was something that someone said to me on social media, and something about uh, you know the the government that we chose in 2015, and yeah, where their motivations lie and and things like that. And I said, well, one could argue that in 2015, the NDP had no idea that they were going to form government. So the fact that they did have some paper candidates who had no idea that they would be heading to government um, and why they've also had a number, I think, a, a fair number of people that didn't want to run again. I think it's because they weren't expecting to win in the first place. But that can't be said for Jason Kenney. He handpicked a number of these candidates you know, there's there's allegations of party interference in so many of the races that allowed someone to win who seemed to be the preferred candidate. He has handpicked this entire group. 
as you know, I don't like to defend Jason Kenny, but <laughs> in the case of Mr. S- in the case of Mark Smith, um, I don't know why I keep calling him Mr. because he doesn't deserve that level of respect. <laughs> but um, in the case of Mark Smith, Jason Kenny did not recruit him. He was a Wild Rose MLA, and he mm-hmm. is part of the Legacy Party. But, but that, but that being said. Kenny likes to brag about the amount of money he's raised. He's got 160,000 members. They've got 300 people that have applied for competitive nominations. And they've bragged about how impressive their vetting process has been. And that's what actually really concerns me is they've, they've literally, like they've probably raised close to $10 million since this unity project started, if not more, Mm -hmm. you can't tell me that they haven't vetted these people that they don't know that these stances are out there Mm -hmm. and if they do that's actually more scary because that tells us that they do know and they don't care right And, and that's what's really frightening to i think a lot of people who have progressive values who are in the lgbtq community um or have somebody that they love that is And if they didn't do it, it shows stunning incompetence Mm -hmm. on their part to not have done that when like this is their election to lose, to not invest the time and effort in going through and vetting your nominees and downloading their Facebook accounts and searching through them. It's very simple to do. The only logical explanation is that they did it. They knew about it. And they didn't think that Alberta would care enough to have to take action on it. And unfortunately, the polls seem to support that. Yeah. I think there's enough economic anxiety out there right now, especially in a place like Drayton Valley, that it's not going to affect Mark Smith's electoral chances. No, abs- no, I don't think it is. And now I will say as well that Mark Smith, even though he started with Wild Rose, so did Rick Strankman, so did uh, Wayne Anderson, so did people who didn't manage to make it through the vet- or the nomination process. So if Mark Smith is still there, it's because Jason Kenney has allowed him to stay, in my opinion. Yep. No, for sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, other than the very obvious amount that he's put into saying, I still support Mark Smith, yeah. but that's the only reason that he got past the you know, in, in the nomination to begin with. And I don't know, I don't remember if he had a contested nomination. Don't know that for sure. It seems to me that it was. Um, I lived in Drayton Valley for about 10 years. So I do somewhat still closely watch their politics. But if I recall off the top of my head, it was a contested nomination. Mark has been a teacher there for 30 years and is quite well connected in the community. And I actually had Oh, in total, it's been over a dozen people that I've worked with or knew from Drayton Valley who've reached out and told me personal stories about knowing Mark and not realizing that he held these views and how they can't vote for him and won't support him. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, he is going to lose some votes and some support because of this. But knowing, especially the rural areas, not so much Drayton Valley itself, he's going to pick up some votes too. So um, it's All unfortunate, right. but is what it is. But back to the interview? Yeah, back to the interview. Um, <laughs> Jesperson listed, he started at a, about 25 different bozo eruptions or or controversies that had plagued the UCP. 
what really was striking was the masterclass that Charles Adler gave in journalism the next night when Jason Kenney came on. And he started off with playing the clip for Kenny of Mark Smith's sermon. And Jason Kenny says, that's the first time that I've heard that. Mm-hmm. And I'm deeply offended by it. But I'm standing by him. I've been defending him for... 24 uh, hours. <laughs> yes, over 24 hours by that yeah. point. It, it might have been closer to... Okay, yeah, yeah, 24 hours by that point. Yeah. yeah. So absolutely stunning that the future premier of our province has one of his representatives come out with this sermon equating abortion with murder and equating and love and love and love yeah and love and equating gay people with fake love and pedophilia at the same time and you have been defending him in the media for 24 hours without having actually listened to that tape so again i go back to what's plausible right Mm -hmm. either you didn't listen to it and you're telling the truth, which shows a stunning level of incompetence and incapability, or you did listen to it and you didn't care, and that you actually do hold the values. And then his defense of Mark Smith is that Mark Smith apologized unequivocally. Mark Smith did not apologize unequivocally. (laughs) Mark Smith doesn't remember saying it. Yeah, he doesn't remember (laughs) saying it. It was a long time ago. It was six years ago. What's so rich for me is that the UCP is freaking out about how Shannon Phillips attended an anti-pipeline rally and David Egan attended an anti-pipeline rally before they were in government six years ago. But Mark Smith said these words six years ago when he he's was changed. in his 50s and he's changed. <laughs> you got to trust us on this, right? So the hypocrisy <laughs> is absolutely stunning. It was not an apology. It was not an unequivocal rejection of those views and this isn't somebody who is in his late teens early 20s this is a man that was in his 50s in a Mm -hmm. position of influence in a small very religious town that was spreading these views when i lived in drayton valley i managed a restaurant i was there for about 10 years openly gay out of 50 employees at one time i had 20 who identified as lgbtq wow percent of my employees identified as being a member of that community and you want to know why because i was openly gay in a small town rural and it was a safe space for them yeah they knew that they could go there they could be themselves they would be judged for who they were and so a to me that makes the case that gsas are important and having a safe space for students is important and I also saw, I think, three or four comments on Twitter and Facebook from people who were in his classes when he was a teacher there, where he made his views known that he didn't think homosexuality was right. And so you got the UCP talking about bringing ideology into the classroom. Well, you know what? That's been happening in Alberta for 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. It's just that your ideology isn't in the classroom now so that's a problem and the thing is it it always has been in the classroom teachers are people teachers are allowed to have their own views you know one of the things Derek Fildebrandt will tell you that he never wants his daughter to attend a public school uh, because when he was a student his teacher had made the comment that that she was voting and they should vote or tell their parents to vote uh 
I don't know, it was probably to the left. And that was, that annoyed Derek to the point that he went out and, and volunteered at the age of 12 or something for the conservative in the riding. That's how he got involved in politics. Oh, wow. Fun That's fact. interesting. But yeah. it was because, it was because of a teacher that he didn't agree with. Hmm. So the thing is that it, it comes from both sides. Teachers are people. And, you know, I think the, I think it's incumbent upon a teacher to say, this is my personal opinion, right? When they're in the classroom, this is what needs to be said. And that, you know, can save everyone a lot of trouble. Because I will also say, at least two years ago, so when Hunter was seven, uh, we had a conversation at home, and I think I was making pizza, and my and Ocean said something to the effect of Hawaiian pizza is the best. And Hunter looked at her and said, that's your opinion. And she said, no, that's a fact. And he said, no, it's not a fact. And they had this huge, Leo, like she was bugging him. But I was really impressed that he's learning that at the age of seven. Here's how you differentiate between an opinion and a fact. And, you know, it was it was fun because he would he would he would challenge so that's exciting. Really off topic there. But <laughs> Charles Adler showed uh, appeared on the Ryan Jesperson show the day after his interview with Jason Kenny, where he held his feet to the fire and he just did not take no for an answer. And so that was one of the things that really stood out for Jesperson was that Kenny had said it was the first time he had heard the tape. So this was Adler's response. That was a political statement that he offered. I'm not going to call him a liar because I don't know for a fact that he did hear the interview, but I'd be astonished if he didn't. He's one of the most well-prepared people that I know. He's got a work ethic that's tougher than tungsten. So the idea that he wouldn't have listened to that and listened to it several times strains credulity. There's other words we use in less polite circles. It's bullshit. So like we're talking the titan of talk in the conservative world isn't buying it. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I have a huge amount of respect for Mr. Adler in holding somebody who's a, a close personal friend of his to this level of account and asking tough questions of him. Because Jason Kenney made a commitment that he wasn't going to let these bozos into government. I'm paraphrasing here with Adler. But he said, there's not a mainstream conservative party in Canada or any other province that would allow these candidates to still be part of their caucus or part of the party. I know. And And that that depresses me so much. And he said, "Um, knock, knock. What have you done with my friend Jason Kenney to Jason Kenney? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he's he's quite fired up about this. And then today it's come out that they were batting emails back and forth. Mark Smith and Grant Hunter in 2016. Right. So only three years ago, two and a half years ago, saying that the government had no business in banning conversion therapy, which is recognized by psychologists and psychiatrists as a harmful and abusive thing where they try to make the kids pray the gay away, basically. It's hard to stomach the fact that this is our province. I moved away in 2000, I guess, and I came back in 2004, and I felt like things had changed. It looked to me like the 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 faces I saw in Calgary had changed, the faces that I was seeing in Red Deer had changed. Like, there, it seemed like... Alberta was moving along. And I find it really kind of heartbreaking 
that we apparently haven't moved along at all. We're we're actually, you know, we're we're aiming for 20, 30, 40 years ago. It's impossible. But I and I realize I realize there's a lot of people that don't understand what they're voting for because they only care Albertans only care about jobs and the economy. You know, kudos to Jason Kenney because that's all that the voters are paying attention to. I don't think it's an Alberta thing. I don't like certainly we are kind of the the hotbed of conservatism or or the home grounds of conservatism in Canada. But you're not just seeing this in Alberta. You're seeing it in Ontario. You've seen it in the US. You've seen it in parts of Europe. It's where, in my view, like I, I, I'm definitely pro-globalism and I'm very much about free trade. But the piece that's been missing is that people who had good paying jobs in industrial industry have been forgotten about and left behind. You've seen it in the U.S. in the Rust Belt and the Coal Belt. You see it in Alberta in coal and in oil and gas. Some of those things are driven by market forces, which is really interesting because they tend to be conservative and pro-markets until the markets fail on them. If governments don't have responses to those changes and aren't taking bold enough steps to address those economic anxieties, that is kind of the bedrock of people's hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. And if they're worrying about where the next paycheck's coming from or they've eaten up their life savings, there's nobody acknowledging that there were people out there with grade 10 educations making 200 grand a year. You become accustomed to a certain lifestyle and there's nobody who you can cut their income by 50 or 75 or 100% and have that be that way for four or five years and not have them have their economics, well, have them revolt or have their economic security be the number one ballot question. Mm -hmm. And that's what the UCP is capitalized on is that there's a lot of young men out there who don't have the education or skills to be able to transition to a new career and find a good paying job service industries aren't willing to take a risk on a person like that because if they did when the boom was happening they got burned Mm -hmm. and so they can't even find minimum wage jobs and they they don't know where the next meal is coming from and so when that happens they don't care about a gay kid in elementary school who might be getting bullied they care about being able to make rent next time and feed their kids And so that's why we're in the position that we're in. I don't like it because obviously I'm somebody who's part of a community that has been threatened by the UCP, but I understand it. And I think Mm -hmm. that if more politicians can understand it and stop trying to make it an either or proposition, the better off we'll be and the less we'll see these right wing populist movements getting into power. The thing that I take issue with is that the UCP isn't going to change it. They're not actually going to manage to reboot the economy. Nope. Because the economy has changed. Yep. So all of these people who are willing to take that risk because this is what's the most important to them are actually putting their faith and their vote to someone who cannot, uh, they can't deliver. Yeah, you're right. Right now, it's the only option that they see as credible. Obviously, I'm very partial to the Alberta Party. 
the Alberta party has spent too much time online. And I know I'm speaking with fork tongue because I was their online guy <laughs> for a long time. What you need to do is you need to get an organizational structure in place that connects with people where they're accessible. And that's in their communities, at their doorsteps. And it's where the UCP has done a much better job. Mm-hmm. And it's the one thing I will give admiration to Jason Kenny for is that he's got an unbreakable work ethic and incredible organizational skills. Mm-hmm. And part of that relies on his resources from the Federal Conservative Party, but he's still done an incredible amount of work. And so in order for another party to be able to displace them as a viable option, they need to invest that work starting on April 17th. Mm-hmm. And they need to not lick their wounds or get knocked off of their mission. But what they need to do is they need to April 17th, establish their constituency associations, get good boards in place, do leadership development, community development, and really connect with the communities and put that infrastructure in place so that when the next election comes around and life isn't better, and in a lot of ways it's going to be worse, mm-hmm. then you no, capitalize so. on it. And I think yeah. people, and I, I truly believe that that's what's going to happen is that we're going to experience another four years of complete misery. And people are going to say, look, we didn't like the progressive conservatives. We swung way left. We didn't mm-hmm. like the NDP. We swung way right. Life hasn't been good under either of these people. So how do we take a progressive approach while looking after jobs and people? I think you're right, because what I foresee you know, the the numbers that Kenny is throwing around, which I am not certain about, but the 183,000 people who are unemployed, I don't care how many tax cuts you give to corporations, they're not going to pull out $200,000 or sorry, 200,000 jobs. It's and I mean, the the jobs that are coming, the jobs that are available are not the same types of jobs that were available before. That's that's half of the problem right now that people are hiring we Alberta is lacking a skill and education set that is moving along with these new industries and that is also problematic for new businesses starting up they're not going to start up here when you don't have the employees to build that business so I mean right now more than anything or to move forward unfortunately we need investments in our social structure We need investments in education, post-secondary education, uh, affordable housing, affordable childcare. This is what people are going to need in order to make, get themselves back on their feet. Here's where I do have a little bit of belief. Like there is going to be a small bump in jobs with the UCP's economic platform. And you, you talk to any economist, you should put taxes on things you're trying to discourage. Right. And, And that's a conservative viewpoint. So if you want jobs, you reduce taxes on income tax, personal income tax, and you reduce taxes on corporate income tax because Mm -hmm. that should spur investment. Now, that hasn't always been the case. And there is a point at which if your taxes go too high, you start to lose jobs. And if they go too low, Rather than investing, you don't create them. Instead (laughs) of investing in jobs, corporations actually hoard the money or return it to shareholders. But small businesses don't do that. 
small businesses are like low income com- low income households if they have an extra hundred dollars in the bank they're not hoarding it they're spending it they're buying Mm -hmm. inventory they're hiring people and so that's what i really liked about the alberta party policy was they were going to increase the threshold from five hundred thousand to a million dollars for small businesses those are the job creators it's not it's not the walmarts of the world it's not the microsoft's of the world that are creating jobs in alberta it's those small businesses and so giving them a break and getting them hiring people is really the way that we get things going so there there is going to be a bump from the ucp and their tax policies it is going to spur some investment but it's not going to be as good as they say and the other challenge for Alberta's economy with the UCP coming into power potentially is that a lot of jobs that existed when the downturn started are now automated yeah and the oil field companies that you know when the times were good were employing two three hundred people now we're employing 15 or 20 Mm-hmm. And those jobs are never coming back. And we don't have an education system that has set these people up for success because they don't understand coding. They don't understand automation. They don't understand AI. And so that's what really needs to happen with our education system is rather than shredding the curriculum, we need to look at what are people going to need five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, so that they've got skills that are adaptable and flexible and allow them to do those jobs that will still support an energy industry, but be supporting it in a much different way. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly it. It's, it's, there is a lot of forward thinking that really needs to be put into Alberta's future. And I, I don't think the UCP wants to look forward at all. It's, it's, it's the, it's the blast from the past and you know, for some people, it might work. Yeah. Well, but, for some people, but it'll never be as good as it was. And uh, there's still going to be a lot of people, like even Jason Kenny admitted himself, the coal-fired plants have started their transition to gas. And they're yeah. not going back. It's going to cost them millions of dollars to do it. So all these promises he's made to these towns like Hannah and like Grand Cash and Edson mm-hmm. in Hinton mean nothing. And four years from now, they're going to be as bad or worse than they are today. And people are going to realize what a snake oil salesman Kenny was. And probably by that point, quite a few of his associates are going to wind up in jail or with criminal charges (laughs) for these donations and voter fraud. And my prediction is, is that that's when you will see some version of a centrist party that's going to be really competitive in the next election. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, if the liberals don't make it through this one, then uh might be easier. Yeah, if we can get David Kahn to stop laying pipe, we'll all be good. <laughs> oh, good times, good times. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. This has been the Political R&D Podcast with Robbie Krieger-Smith. And Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. Deirdre, where can people find you online? They can find me on Twitter at Mitchell underscore AB. And you can find me online at RKS Alberta. The Political R&D Podcast can be found on Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. And you can also find Political R&D on Twitter at Political R-N-D. Goodbye, Robbie. Goodbye, Deirdre. <laughs>